Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Climate Champions podcast. Today's episode includes an interview with Dr. Cyrus Wadia, the head of sustainable product at Amazon, previously the vice president of sustainable business and innovation at Nike. Cyrus holds a PhD in energy and resources from UC Berkeley and has also served in the public sector in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, where he advised the Obama administration on design of national policy on energy, climate, and advanced materials to improve sustainability across industries in the United States. Here's that conversation. Cyrus, this is an impressive resume, and I'm so grateful to have you joining me on the podcast to talk sport and sustainability and innovation related to energy and resources in the future. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there's a lot of experience and expertise to dig into here. I want to start by learning a little bit about you. Where did you grow up and what made you choose a career in energy and sustainability of all things? Oh, great. So I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, Kingston. It's in the Catskill Mountains. And uh, yeah, this is sort of your classic off the beaten path town. There was a lot of, I think in my really young days, a lot of you know, access to the outdoors, uh, you know, that's beautiful country up there, rolling hills, trees and forests. And so I think kind of, I found my connection to the environment at a really, really young age because, you know, in a small town like that, that, you know, you don't have a whole lot of options. Right. And so I, and I think that when I got to MIT and just kind of reflecting on that moment in time, I was really kind of keen on you know, science and engineering type of background and learning those skills. I was not really kind of set on a particular pathway, just that, you know, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. And it was actually in my junior year at MIT where I had a chance to go to Washington, D.C. as a policy intern. And I this is now what back in 1995, summer of 95. I land in DC, not not knowing anything about policy really, right. but being placed in a small think tank called the Climate Institute. And so back in 95, like climate was we we had awareness, but there was really no action. It's not like what we have today. So it was very early in the game, and you had these activists that were trying to drive national policy, and it was a fascinating experience because. I, you know, got really deep on this idea of climate and I naturally gravitated, being as sort of an entrepreneur and technology person, I gravitated towards policy that would actually incent and support early stage innovation that could play in the market without, you know, government support. And, you know, I worked, I worked on this really robust analysis. I thought it was like, yeah, this is excellent work and I was really proud of it. They kind of looked at it and they just sort of said, oh, well, thanks for the summer. And they threw it on the shelf and they never thought about it again. Right. And I feel like that was a moment in time where I grew really, really passionate about these core ideas. And so I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to kind of go along on this. And maybe there are different ways to channel it, but I'm really passionate about renewable energy. I've kind of found that love through this policy work that I did that was really not kind of received at all. And <laughs> that's, I think, that, I think that's the origin story of my interest in this space. So, you know, classic student takes an internship, loves it, but, you know, doesn't get necessarily the feedback or response they're looking for. 
but it just kind of sets off a passion. Yeah. Awesome. And then you go on, you know, further into academia and you do a PhD. Why did you choose to, to pursue grad work as opposed to entering that policy space that you liked so much? Well, you know how it is when you're kind of in your early 20s. Like when, when somebody tells you no, you become more convicted that you're probably right. And, <laughs> and I think that my, my feeling at that moment in time was I'm not going to drive this through the policy narrative. Not today, not in 1995. Right. I need to get into the technology space and prove what I'm talking about. And the thing I was trying to prove was there's a no compromise approach to sustainable technology and innovation and growth markets and, you know, what we take for granted in terms of our private sector. So I went out and started to work in Silicon Valley that had nothing to do with this. And I spent seven years learning business and entrepreneurship and innovation and kind of learning from the best. Right. And then I chose, I said, you know, okay, I'm at this point now where I'm ready to get back into original promise. Let me go do that. But I want to work on a core breakthrough technology. I do not see anything off the shelf that's going to scale the way I believe we need to scale the terawatts of clean energy. And so that's what drew me back to the lab. And, you know, the PhD was sort of a natural way of getting in back into the lab, having just spent seven years as an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Right. So that innovation piece really drove you. And then you ended up years later in the White House Office of Science and Tech Policy. I'll be honest, I didn't know that existed. So what is that office... <laughs> responsible for? And what was your role yeah. there? What, how did you parlay that passion for the climate and these energy solutions and that innovation bug into really important policy work at a really interesting time in American development on that policy line? Yeah, you know, it's a bit of a black box. What is the White House? What is, mm -hmm. you know, not many people. I didn't even, I, I even talked to the White House prior to taking the position. And I still didn't understand what it was. But naturally, you know, six years later, I, I felt really, really strongly about you know, the type of work we did during those years in that administration. I felt really strongly about having a strong and gifted kind of cadre of scientists in the White House to kind of inform policy and also set science policy. And so I think that the moment that I was given that opportunity and, you know, it's sort of a, a stroke of fortune. I think that's kind of the best way to put it, that I, I got, they reached out to me to help kind of lead some clean energy policy. I, I feel like at that moment, I did understand the power of that platform and, you know, how we can actually create more systemic change, because there's, there's kind of two sides to these equations. There's the supply side and demand side. And if you're an innovator and an entrepreneur, you might gravitate to the supply side to say, hey, I'm going to create the next great thing and it's going to be amazing and, you know, watch this thing take off. Right. And these are probably the right ideas and they're probably the right technologies and innovations. But then there's this massive disconnect between the science that happens and the innovation that happens in these smaller entities and you know, driving things to scale. So I think for my part, I felt like maybe I can help juice that a little bit by kind of working on the demand side. Can we set national policies? Can we create support structures for these types of entrepreneurial activities? How do we actually achieve this mission of you know, zero carbon, zero greenhouse gas emissions? How do we achieve a mission of kind of 
rich entrepreneurship and innovation. And naturally, the federal government has a lot of different levers you can pull. So I think that's whether I realized it or not, when I stepped foot in the White House, I definitely I I think I, I was better at articulating that possibility six years later, no doubt. Right. And so what kinds of policies were implemented in that time? Can you talk me through an example or two of, you know, this is one of the things that we accomplished that was really cool and made a big difference? Well, one thing that we put together that I I had kind of a close hand in is something called the Materials Genome Initiative. This is a budgetary initiative that started kind of as a twinkle in our eyes because we we were asking the question, why does it take 20 years to get a new material innovation to market? And that could be true of solar or batteries and clean tech or right. you know, other materials that go into automobiles and aerospace and everything, electronic materials, you name it. And right. it's remarkable how consistent that is, that 20-year period. And so we asked that question and we created this effort that became a multi-agency effort around cutting that in half. And that's called the Materials Genome Initiative. And I want to say in our first year, this is now dating me back to, what, 2011. I believe the president announced it in 2011. And we had about $30 million secured. About six years later, by the time I was leaving, if you kind of sum up all the federal investments, the federal investment side of that came to half a billion. And there was probably an equivalent match that was happening in the private sector. And... And most recently, this, this initiative has gone really well. And it's, it, what's been really nice about it is it's survived, I think, the political transitions because, you know, we baked it into the budget. We grew it. It was a sensible policy on materials innovation that affects American innovation. It affects domestic manufacturing. It affects everything. Right. And it's the bedrock to everything we're talking about because I, you can't point to a big grand challenge a big societal problem today without also talking about a material that underpins a solution. And so long story short, that was one example. Another quick example is what we did around critical minerals and rare earth elements. And so I was involved in that. I had a lot of opportunity to weigh into the administration's clean power plan, which became sort of the, our canon for climate and so many other things in between. It's, it was just kind of a really rich experience in so many different ways. That's really, and then, so then you left that office having accomplished so much with a, a cool team of brilliant people and you moved to Nike, right? The big private yeah. corporation. Were you based on the West Coast or are you based out in Beaverton? In Beaverton, yeah. In Portland, yeah. outside of Portland, Oregon. Yeah. So Nike, you know, one of those classic one person has a really great idea for a product and then scales and scales and scales into one of the biggest sport brands in the world, one of the most recognizable names for sure. What does the vice president of sustainable business and innovation do at Nike? And what did you make of that role? Yeah. So the sustainable business and innovation team was kind of a catch-all of all innovation around sustainability as well as core corporate social responsibility. So you know, part of my team, we had people working on our reporting. We had people working on analytics to inform our supply chain. We had people kind of working on new ideas and science technology. We had people integrating core strategies into the business. And so it was 
it was a lot and you tend to hit sustainability from all, many different angles. But one of the things that we did when we first walked in or I, I did was organize that team around a mission to get to half the impact. And, you know, when, when you talk about those things externally, like yeah. some people might react like, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a really ambitious target. We understand what it would take to really transform your supply chain. Others might look at it and say, hey, that's not enough. And um, I think they're both right. You yeah. know, the, the people who get excited and energized by it. But what really happens inside the company is you galvanize people around a common mission and destination and you start aligning resources to get after it. And that's, I think, the most important thing. So we, we created this destination. We built a roadmap to get there. And we organized our team around that. And I'd say, you know, during my time there, it was sort of a, there are two sides to it. We clearly didn't go as far as I was interested in going as the leader of that, as far as the team was interested in going. But we did make a lot of progress. I think we created a new energy around climate change, some of which I think you're going to be hearing about you know, shortly as we get into climate week. Yeah. We created... We created a big play around renewable energy in our supply chain, and we went from zero to 70%. We started understanding our toxics in our supply chain, in Nike's supply chain, better and kind of getting out of the things that we knew were, were not okay. And so there's, there's a whole lot of other things we did around the branding and the communications around purpose. So I feel really good about track record there and kind of what we were able to get done. I am, you know, I guess my one disappointment was we didn't, we weren't able to get it as far as I would have liked, but, you know, you know, we'll see in the coming years. It's possible right. that you know, Nike again can take that leadership position, but right now Nike's squarely in the pack. You know, it's not, it's not trying to be overly disruptive, but it is moving along with where the rest of the industry wants to go. And what was the feedback from Nike stakeholders? Were the employees, you know, you said that for the most part, they really uh, they were excited about this. But what about the consumer base? Nike's consumer base, I imagine, is you know probably pretty loyal. There's some pretty strong brand connections there. Were they excited about this? Was this something that got promoted to the external parties very much, or was it an internal mission? And what did that look like? I know climate change can be a bit tough to talk about in a, in a public space. So was that part of it at all, or was this an internal initiative? No, there was clearly a connection with external stakeholders. And I think that Nike has a long history of being a lead voice of change in this space, especially when it comes to labor and labor practices in apparel and footwear. And so the idea behind this initiative was, you know, broadly shared and accepted. And I think people were, were generally excited about it. And this is all public. You can kind of look at not the most recent, but last year's corporate social responsibility report from Nike and, and see, kind of read a little bit about this idea of getting to half the impact and what that means. You know, the engagement you know, is, is always a good question, but at the end of the day, you got to pick a goal and go after it and, right. you know, not get too distracted about what you know, your customers think, what your employees think, what the nonprofits think, what the investors think, they all will have opinions and they'll react to kind of what they're learning in the popular press. And you've got to accept all those signals. But at the end of the day, nobody knows kind of your, what you're able to achieve 
as a company, as a corporation, as a brand better than you when you're in those companies. And so you've right. got to pick a, pick a goal and get after it. Right. And then in terms of where, you know, the sports sector kind of in a larger sense is going, Nike obviously is a, a sporting good brand, but has some, you know, deep connections in terms of sponsorship to other sectors of the sport industry in terms of their athletes and so on and so forth. What do you think, you know, there's a big debate going on of, of is sport special? Is it different than other industries? What's your take on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So sport has an outsized voice in society. And for that reason alone, it is special. You would be hard-pressed to find a better unifying force, especially in our country, but I think this is true globally, of sport and participation in sport and you know, being a consumer and a viewer of sport. And so when you see sport as, a, as an industry, that's everything from the brands, the franchises, to the athletes, when you see them basically aligned around you know, core messages or missions, we've seen this happen on social issues many, many times over, yeah. then I, I do think that there's an influence and some of it's subtle. And I think that's a good place to be because what you gotta, you always run the risk of something like this topic being overly politicized. And so you don't want to get into that space. But I think that Athletes have always historically been a voice of change and and more kind of a more progressive leaning voice. So, hundred percent believe that sport has a unique role to play in all. And in terms of what has to happen next in this industry, where the next opportunities are, or you know, the grad students that are listening to this podcast, the you know, up and coming generation of leaders. Where do they have to go with this? What is the next kind of big goal that they need to think about and align around or the big topic they need to learn to understand to champion climate change and to champion sustainable management? Well, it's hard to really distill it into you know, one core objective. Right. I believe there are lots of different ways to channel your energy. It's kind of a, kind of a young, energetic values-driven individual. And if you find yourself in a company, if you find yourself working for us, whatever this may be, I think that the culture of the organization is what should matter most. And do not take anything at face value. So what I mean by that is there are a lot of companies out there, I'm very familiar with, with several of these that like to talk about you know, what they're doing and they're not doing it. You know, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're more kind of just being politically correct and kind of giving a message. And I think it's getting harder and harder to fool the consumers and the people watching, but they're still kind of in that mode. Well, that is sort of a, usually a direct reflection of the following. When you walk into any institution, an academic institution, a government body, a private sector company, the leadership is going to have a view of how much of the system is fixed and how much of it is movable. And your job as a young kind of early career individual is to test that. And huh. if you're interested in being a change agent and kind of really making a difference, then it is incumbent upon you to find those areas where the culture feels like it is fundamentally believing that the system is 
100% movable and nothing is fixed. If you can find those opportunities, it doesn't matter where you go. Like that's where you have the best opportunity for your kind of sweat equity to make the biggest difference. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the call, for participating in this podcast. I think there's a lot here in terms of learning opportunities for students to, to think about. So really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Really nice chatting with you. Take care.